Good evening. Thank you all so much for coming out. Why don't you stand with me? I forgot to line a leader up so you get me again tonight on the music. So if you'd stand with me, please. Turn to page 487. 487. A hymn we all know very well. One of the best. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your name, God, for your glory, for your works from creation to redemption. Father, we give you praise and glory in this place. I thank you, Lord, that you've brought us all back here tonight. Lord, I ask that you would be with us, that you would be glorified, that you would come near and speak to us tonight as we sing, as we open your word together, as we pray. Lord, watch over our hearts. Keep us fixed on you. For our joy, Father, and your glory in all things, we ask and pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And you can be seated, everyone. Just uh, let me reiterate a couple announcements from this morning. Uh, Wednesday night Bible study, like normal this week, back on 6.30 on Wednesday. No choir Tuesday night. Uh, youth, everything else is normal on Wednesday. Volleyball at 6.30 on, or 6 o'clock on Thursday, next Sunday, the 28th. Uh, the children's choir will be here. Uh, if you've ever had a chance to see a children's choir, a Ugandan children's choir or a Nigerian, it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing. It's really great and it's, it's, a, it's a blessing. So if you can make it out for that, please do. Uh, also, uh, youth, remember this coming Saturday at 1130 a.m. here at the church, we'll meet for the line of service project, making blankets for those who will be in great need of them this winter. So that, that's, a, that's a great thing to be a part of if you can. Um, let me see. Just to update you, I guess, on, on, uh, one of our prayer requests from this morning, uh, Bob Bonnet's mother is, um, not doing as well as she was doing yesterday. Is that correct? So she, she's in need of prayer. They're here tonight, but I believe, Bob, your cousin is there with, and so we, we want to make sure we continue to remember Betty Stein and then the other requests on this list as well. Um, at this time, Let's go ahead and take our evening offering.
you, gentlemen. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for what you provide for us at all times and all things, personally in our families, Father, and for our church. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified through this offering, that it would be used for what you intended to be used for, uh, to expand the influence of your name all over the world from our community out, uh, provide for our needs. Father, we thank you and praise you for it, and ask and pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, I guess it's sermon time already. <laughs> Always Sunday nights, it's, it's, we get right to it, don't we? I, I, um, I did want to let you all know, uh, we're going to take, summer's, summer's a little different here, and I, I know that you're, you're used to that, and that's fine. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm getting used to that also, I didn't mean anything by that. Um, the, uh, I know I've talked a lot about starting Genesis. We are starting Genesis, God willing, on Sunday evening, September the 8th. From now until then, we miss two more Sunday nights. I just, in my own head, I'd rather not uh, start Genesis and then stop. And then, so, so uh, we'll pick it up in September. I hope that's all right. Uh, what I thought we'd do from now until then, however, is look at some of the parables of Jesus. These are... Um, Always, I mean, every, everything in the Word is is always relevant, always powerful, always uh, wonderful. And so we'll take this time to look at, at some of these parables together. Luke 14, where we'll be tonight, um, ends with some of the most challenging statements Jesus ever made, right? Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. When I first studied this text that I can remember, I read something in a commentary that just blew my mind. And it said this this sentence about this text, all are invited to accept God's grace, but with grace comes demand. With grace comes demand. Is that what Jesus is saying in this text? That yes, grace initially saves you, But if you don't sell out at this level, then you aren't a Christian at all because grace comes with demand, which, again, by definition then, isn't grace at all. It it looks like grace on the front end, but really what actually ends up saving us is our commitment to Jesus, whether or not we meet the demand that grace makes. Again, that's, that's the option. So really by the time you get to Luke 14, in the flow of Luke, even though Jesus has deliberately taught so far in this book that he has come with good news for the poor. Liberty, to give liberty to the captives, to set free those who are oppressed. He's now saying something completely different. Only those with the strength, the commitment, the moxie to be sold out enough will actually be saved. Is that what Jesus is saying in this text? How do we make sense of this? Context context. And the parables here show us the way. In, in, in Matthew 13, Jesus quoted the Psalms to show what was happening when he spoke in these stories called parables. Jesus was revealing things that had been hidden about God since the foundation of the world. So parables aren't necessarily clever stories to reveal an ethic or a teaching. They aren't even to make heavenly things more understandable when you really look at the words of Jesus, they reveal the truth about God that had been hidden until Jesus finally arrived, revealing everything. The parables reveal truth about God that had not yet been known, truth that only Jesus could teach. So we have to listen and understand the depth of the divine when we're reading and studying the parables. And in Luke 14 we find through what Jesus tells that it isn't, it isn't commitment that is the mark of those who belong to Jesus. Even, those, even though those that belong to Him are committed to Him, it isn't commitment that is the mark of those who belong, who really belong to Jesus. It's grace-driven humility. So let me pray for us one more time and then we'll go to the text together. Father, I thank You again for tonight. I thank You for Your Word. Lord, please... Uh, overshadow me, help me preach the text 
uh, preach what you breathed into it, not what I wanted to say, Father. So I, I, I need your help tonight. Be with me. Uh, Father, watch over everyone who's here tonight as they listen. May we understand your book. I ask and pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me start at verse 1 of chapter 14 in Luke. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Now this is the third and the last dinner in Luke at a Pharisee's home. You would think by now that they have learned not to invite Jesus to things. Okay, because he's just... He's just going to do what Jesus does. He's going to make fools of them. But pride is stronger than sense. Verse 2, And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy, edema here, a, um, a swelling in the body due mainly to water retention. In the Greco-Roman world, dropsy was seen almost exclusively as the consequence of gluttony. People were even called dropsies in a derogatory way. So this man is... is we can assume already, to some degree at least by this crowd, looked down upon. Verse 3, And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. So the answer is, is it lawful? Yes, it is. Jesus is doing nothing wrong here. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out. So Jesus is continuing to expose the hypocrisy of the rules they've made, the additional rules they've made. Verse 7, now he told a parable to those who were invited. So that's his audience, that's his target group. When he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Twelve times in this passage, Jesus will use the word invited. Invitation, then, is central to this text. Invitation is central to this text. For these Pharisees, their whole approach to those who belong at table in the kingdom of God is based on earning your invitation. What we're going to find is that their social lives revealed their theology. When they all gathered in this home, they chose the places of honor around the other Pharisees' table because that's what they believed they deserved. Their whole approach to God and salvation and the kingdom was that surely they belonged at the table. They had a place there. And not just any place at the table but a place of honor. And Jesus confronts their pride with a parable. Remember, he's revealing something about God here. He teaches that the proper way to respond to an invitation, at least to a wedding feast, is to assume you don't deserve it. So that when you walk into the house and choose the lowest seat, then the host who invited you can determine who gets the places of honor. That's not for the guests to presume or to decide and if Christ had been sent from God to extend an invitation to those who could never buy a seat at his table, what does their presumption say they believe about salvation? Their belief that they deserve a seat at God's table is the fundamental reason why they're rejecting Jesus. It's the result of their own assessment of their worth and their behavior that has led them to believe they're so righteous, God owes them a seat. They assumed a seat. Jesus is revealing that there's no such thing as deserving around God's table. No one is there because they deserve to be. In the kingdom of God, to believe that you belong is to void your invitation. Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And only those who humble themselves will be exalted. Only the broken will be taken up higher by their host. This is the heartbeat of the text, beloved. Okay? This is the heartbeat of the text. It drives how we understand everything that follows. Look at verse 12. 
He also said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, when you give a dinner or a banquet. So Jesus addressed invitations and hosts here because their attitude in both reflected what they believed about how one is accepted by God. He also said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Jesus reveals that, it, that to some extent, to, to, in some way, how we live socially with one another, with, with unbelievers says a lot about what we really believe about who God accepts and why. When these men had banquets, they chose their invitees very carefully. right? And they ended up only inviting and bringing people close to them that were going to respond in kind. So only the worthy were invited, those that were able to pay them back. They had an ethic in which you only gave your time and effort to things if they were going to benefit you directly, if you were going to gain from them. And this is what they believe about God and the kingdom, which is why they weren't getting Jesus and his talk of grace. That's why it was so foreign to them. Their relationship with God was transactional. He does for him, or we do for him, he does for us. Right? We, we put him in our debt through our goodness and he repays us for it with a seat at table in his kingdom. All these other dropsies can't live righteous enough to get a seat, but God owes us a place of honor. That's why they were so passionate about the law that they actually added to it to keep from breaking it. They were trying to put God in their debt. That was their thinking. But God has never invited anyone to his table because they could repay him. No one can. God is in no one's debt. No one will ever swindle God or put God in their back pocket. God owes us nothing but justice. Right? God lacks nothing. So why would His relationship with us ever be transactional? Why would God present Himself to us in a way that He needs things from us? He needs nothing. It's God, the source of all things. He hasn't invited us to his table then out of need, a personal need that he has, or because he lacked something he could only get if he got us on his side. What we're finding, what Jesus is revealing about God that hadn't been clear since the foundation of the world is that God loves to heal the broken. Now again, there are times that's clear, but Jesus has come to reveal it in full. He loves to heal the broken. He loves to serve the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind precisely because they can't repay Him. That's the group God is gathering around His table. Jesus keeps revealing that. So when these men held their apparently self-serving banquets to get and gain and be recognized, Jesus said they were really showing that they think they don't need grace. That's not how they live their lives. That's not how they behaved. Jesus said that if their hearts had any true recognition of their unworthiness before God, that would be reflected to some degree at least in the reason for which they had these banquets. And it wouldn't be to get anything. It would be precisely because they knew they couldn't ever get paid back. Until that was clear in their hearts, they would remain far outside the kingdom, no matter how committed they were to righteousness. And they were. Verse 15, When one of those who reclined at table with him, so this is one of the invitees, invitees, right? When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. This guy assumes he's going to be there when that day finally comes, right? You know, oh, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But, verse 16, he said to him. So, what was just said is not good. <laughs> right? That word but means Jesus is contradicting his presumption. And he will do so by means of another parable, which we know from Matthew, why Jesus told parables. He's doing this either to pry open this man's heart or to confuse the man further. This is what he says in verse 16, a man once gave a banquet and invited many. 
And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. That that's, just makes me laugh. He's like, I'm, I can't be going to banquets. I'm married. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servants, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in, right, carry them, the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. Of course there is. Because the kingdom of God is like a tree with enough room for birds from the north and the south and the east and the west to nest in its branches. Of course there's still room. Verse 23, And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. That's God talking. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Jesus is applying this parable directly to the people in that house. Right? He destroys the smugness of the guy in verse 15. He's, he's making a point about just how far from understanding grace these self-righteous men really were, precisely because they were self-righteous. Why did those who were originally invited to this great banquet make excuses? Because they did not understand the privilege of being invited. He compares their refusal to embrace Him as their only hope of salvation to people who are so full of themselves they would make excuses not to attend a banquet they have no business being invited to in the first place. Grace feels a little bit beneath people that have it all together. And Jesus says, no one in the kingdom ever thinks anything or anyone is beneath them. They're all too low to look under themselves, right? The invitation to this banquet was so big that these people should have put everything in their lives on hold to go. Everything. Work, possessions, family. It all can wait if you've been invited to this banquet by this master. It all can wait. These Pharisees should have left all their self-righteousness behind and just accepted Jesus' free invitation. Jesus is telling these religious men, much like he did back in 1335. Right? Jesus is building on that idea, and he's telling these men, you no longer have a seat at the table. Right? You, you had the audacity to be so sure of your place that you rejected God's mercy when it came inviting you to save you, to rescue you. Humans go to great lengths to fill their banquet halls. Imagine what God will go. Uh, imagine how far God will go to fill his house. Jesus is revealing. Now in fullness for the first time since the foundation of the world that God's plan is to move from inviting a select few, Israel, to bringing in and compelling people from the four winds, the whole world into his house. And this is an indictment here against Israel's lack of recognition of her own unworthiness to sit at God's table. Because remember, they weren't chosen because of who they were. Right? They were chosen because of who God is. I loved you because I loved you, is God's statement in Deuteronomy. I didn't choose you because you were the biggest. Or I, I, Again, that doesn't mean that Jewish people can't be saved. My goodness, not at all. He's, he's saying that in that state of mind, as they are here, these Pharisees, there is no place for them at the table. Right? That will always hold true. It turns out, then, if, if you... Take your eyes up quickly to 13, 28 to 29. When Jesus was talking, it turns out that the workers of iniquity who are left out of the banquet are the ones who were outwardly moral. The ones who were so sure they were invited. And now we're starting to get some context for those tougher verses to come. All these men had spiritual dropsy. Do you see it? Right? Nothing Jesus does is, is random or happenstance. Every miracle is tied very intricately to what's going on around it and what Jesus is saying. And All these men have spiritual dropsy. 
They're so swollen and bloated with love and honor for themselves. It was palpable to Jesus. That's why he heals a guy that has physical dropsy. I can cure this. Right? Jesus, you, you go be merciful to the people that need it. You know, you go invite the people that would be honored to be invited. We, we already know we have a seat. People might be excited to get invited, but we deserve to be there. So we'll come to one of your banquets when we have, when we can fit it in on our calendar. Right? And Jesus proclaims, no, 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 no. The banquet will not be called off because of your absence. And you will not be able to attend on your own terms and arrive whenever you like. God has no need for their approval or contributions. In fact, God will, God in Christ will willingly open himself up to ridicule from self-righteous dropsies immediately to follow in chapter 15 by opening his doors to the group of outcasts we see around his table. The rich might not come if so many poor are there, right? You, you, you can't, you can't rub elbows with the riffraff and maintain your reputation. And Jesus says, that's the point. What does 15 reveal? As it builds on this, I invite people that know how to throw a party. That's who I want around my table. God chooses the company of sinners who cannot repay his generosity. That's who he's pursuing. And that's all of us. If we, we, sometimes we just we don't see ourselves that way. And that is the context, beloved, in which we find these next verses about the cost of following Jesus. We're meant to read verses 25 to 33 with this idea very clear in our minds that everyone who exalts themselves will be humbled and everyone who humbles themselves will be exalted. Remember? We're meant to come into verses 25 to 33 remembering that we've been invited to a banquet at which we have no business being so we should let everything else go, no matter what it is, in order to attend. Verse 25, Now great crowds accompanied him. Jesus Christ would never have passed a church planter assessment. Nobody would have ever picked him. No, no church organization would have ever said, This guy can get things done. Right? Every, uh, practically every time he talked, people left. Right? So, so just Now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them something very safe so that he wouldn't lose people. No, it's Jesus. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate... So he wants to be crystal clear, and the use of this word hate is a means to that end. I, I, I don't think he means love less here. I think on some level he means precisely what he says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Who's in? Right, do you, Beloved, do you understand how, how holy the Son of God is? Like, this is what's required. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus, what are you doing? You don't say that when great crowds are around. Everybody's going to leave. But if we've been listening and watching, of course he would say this when great crowds are around. Jesus is very particular about who he wants around his table. So what is he doing? He's weeding out anyone that thinks, I can do that. That's what he's doing. Verse 28, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it. He, he, he's such a masterful teacher. 29. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, often this section is presented to us in isolation. Right, you, you just hear it as a as a statement that that comes outside of its context. What what have we since I was a boy? 
What do we normally hear with this text? That, look, we all need to get more serious about following Jesus. Get more committed, make more sacrifices, bear your own cross. There is something to be said here. We won't get into it tonight. We do have to be mindful of Jesus speaking to Israel directly. That, that's an element here. But this is still for all of us to hear. But that's normally what we hear. That, um, which, which again, how, how, how are we going to balance that, so to speak? We hate that word, or I, I do, but, but how do we balance that with believe and you'll be saved? Wait a minute, which is it? Is it believe and you're saved, or is it you bear your own cross and you die and you hate everything and your own life? And which is it? Those are the questions the text forces us to ask. Do we really think now, after what we've read, and if we were going all the way through Luke, I think it would, it would hit a little bit harder. Do we really think now that the point of being a disciple is to prove through our commitment that we are worth Jesus' investment? Does that jive with what we've just read about who Jesus invites and why? That sounds more like a recipe to become a Pharisee to me. But in light of the whole text, it's there. What is the cost of following Jesus? Because there is a cost and we must weigh it out. What do I really have to renounce? What's, what's so hard to renounce? Right? What is it that I need to make sure I'm ready to let go of if I want to follow Jesus? Beloved, my pride my sense of deserving, my sense of demanding that I get repaid, this is our life. This is our life. Let go of all the things in which I find reasons for God to accept me. You know, I've, I've done well with this, I've done well with that, I'm committed with this, I'm committed with that. We are bloated by love for ourselves that, I think, is what keeps us so far from the kingdom when it does. And only Jesus can heal us. We're so bloated with pride and our grace-rejecting natures that we would discard an invitation to a banquet at which we have zero business being. Right? And Jesus knows who we are. He knows that the hardest thing for us to do is to not commit to being better people. We can all keep rules if we want to badly enough to some degree. That, 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 that's, that's not how you get saved. No matter what can be said, we know that's not how you get saved. Or stay saved. So Jesus knows that the real fight is in here. It's, it's me. That there's nothing harder to renounce in this world than our self-centeredness and our self-reliance. Adam's sin... Just thinking through Genesis and trying to understand it, trying to... St- I, I, remember, Eve ate the fruit first. Why are we not cursed with Eve's sin? Right? We, we, Romans 5, we, we inherit Adam's from Adam his rebellion, his sin nature. Why? He ate it second. I, I don't think Adam's sin necessarily was eating the fruit. And I want to be very careful here. I think Adam wanted to self-identify. I think, I, I think in Eve's thoughts about the fruit, you're seeing what was really the issue there. Right? It, was, it looks good to me. Right? It looks, I think it looks good. I think it's fine. Right? I, I think it would make me wise. I, you, right? A complete, horrible, rebellious separation from their Creator and their Father. No, no, no. I can... I know what's good for me, right? I know what I can do. I know what will make me, right? It's all self-identification. That's where I think that's the fight that's in us since the garden, right? And, and, and I think God puts up maybe two flaming swords so that we can't go back and take of the tree of life and eat like, because we're going to be trying to. And God says, no, 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 you, you, I'm not going to let you back in here like that. You're not going to take the tree of life and eat it and gain eternal life, but you're not going to do that. 
So I, I, I think, I think maybe the, the core of our rebellion is, is right here. That's why I think the hardest thing to renounce is not other things, especially when I can be served by renouncing them. What must be renounced in this text in order to sit down at table in the kingdom of God is the idea that we deserve or could ever earn a seat there. That is the context of when and why Jesus says these things. That's what I think keeps us from being real disciples. Again, it's Beloved, when we talk about grace, it is not that that means it, nothing matters. No, 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 no. I think what keeps us from being the disciples Jesus desires for us to be is, is we neglect our desperate need for pure grace. We, and we are still trying to do something, some of it, in our own strength. And we are just always cutting ourselves off at the knees. Right? And again, is there anything harder to convince us of than it might be me? I might be the reason I'm not, right? I'm not glorifying with my life. It might be me. You hear, you've heard me use this phrase before. I, just, I love it so much. The kingdom of God is not for the little engine that could. It's for the train wreck that can't. That is why the self-righteous glory hogs who love themselves and their rule-keeping and commitment will miss the kingdom of God by an eternal mile. That is why these passionately religious men, unless they repent, will miss it. They realize it isn't about... They realize what Jesus is saying. They realize, oh, you're saying that it's not about commitment, it's about grace and mercy, and they want nothing to do with it. Why? Because they're full of, they have dropsy spiritually. They're full of themselves. They're swollen with it. If Jesus would have come saying, now you need to do this and this and this and God will accept you, they wouldn't have crucified Him. They would have revered Him. But instead, he came eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. Healing and loving. Right? He, he made the kingdom about God's mercy rather than their works, and they killed him for that. He put egg on their face all the time, and they hated him for it. The kingdom requires verse 11. Right? Count the cost of verse 11. That's the, count the cost of that. Because we're too bloated to heal ourselves. It's, it's the humbling effect Jesus has in our lives that is going to mark us as His own in a way that nothing else would. 34. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So, true disciples of Jesus are like salt in the world. There's something about them, about us, that has a seasoning effect on the world. And if salt loses that quality, namely its saltiness, there's no point to it. And beloved, there is nothing salty whatsoever in this world about morality. That's not how we season the world, by our morals. Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Muslims for the most part, Orthodox Jews are living technically much more moral lives, if you want to look at it on a scale, than we are. They aren't changing the world with love and devotion and awe for their God. All right? it's, it's, it, that's not... It's not... Uh, there's no flavor in it to the world. There's no flavor in it. If Jesus meant here that by your commitment level or your morality you would distinguish yourself as the people of God in the world, he would have been a Pharisee. They did it better than anybody ever has. Right? I still... Well, no, I'm not going to say that because it's not true. <laughs> Never mind. He, he, <laughs> he certainly... Again, if, if he meant here that by your commitment level or by your morality, you would distinguish yourself as the people of God in the world, if that's the salt... He would have been a Pharisee. He would not have spent his entire ministry rebuking the Pharisees. Right? They, he, that's who he would have been eating with. That's the point. That's what we see when we move into Luke 15. They're mad, just like the older brother is, that he's not eating with them when they've done so much for him. Right? That's... Th 
Nothing is as salty to the world, however, as the kind of humility that comes from knowing we don't deserve what we have in Jesus. Now that's salty. Right? That's different. That has flavor. Again, that doesn't mean so be as loose morally as you can. No, that's, that's not the point. Not the point. One thing is salty enough to mark us off as truly belonging to Jesus in a world full of people filled with themselves, in a world full of dropsies, grace-driven humility. Our entire outlook towards others changes in a palpable, tangible way when we genuinely believe we have no business at the banquet where we are now feasting and will feast for all eternity. That puts the season back in our salt, beloved. We've been invited to recline at table in the kingdom of God and we do not deserve it. That is the basis of true Christian living. The whole idea of behaving based on what we believe we deserve is antithetical to the gospel of the kingdom and will keep us more than anything else from being the disciples we've been called to be. We deserve to be left outside. We deserve to be left outside. And we've been given a place of honor. We've been moved up by the grace of the Father. That's meant to crush us. Right? It's, it's, it's not a passing thought. It's not, it's not for the rear view mirror. It, it, beloved, this is everything. How, what is it that my mouth is allowed to open the word and preach it every week? This mouth, this man allowed to stand in front of you. How, how can we come into this place? How can we take of, of the elements that signify the body and blood of Jesus? How is this even allowed? How's it even allowed? It's, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. That's what it means to follow Jesus, to be crushed, that He might be exalted. Have we counted the cost of that? Right? Don't, again, it's Christ and Him crucified, not me and me improved. So when I read the text, don't go to you right away. Do some work with the text. What is Jesus saying? What's happening? What's going on around it? Where are the things going? Right? This is a feast. This is a, a feast for you, beloved, this book. This is why it's so hard to follow Jesus. Because it's, it's all built on grace. <laughs> That's what makes it so hard. Humans love to be told, tell me what I need to do and I'll do it. That's a very good feeling when you complete a task you were given. Well, that's not the way this works. That's what everyone actually wants to avoid is grace because we're all bloated by pride. It's through our lives. It will show up, at least to some degree, in our social patterns that we will reflect or cloud the fact that we've been freely invited and accepted by the Father through Jesus Christ, it is not a badge of honor for you if sinners would not feel welcome at your table. We take pride in that. It's antichrist. It is not Christ-like. It's nothing to do with condoning sin. Jesus didn't condone anyone's sin. He died for it. So when you see him eating with tax collectors and sinners, the first thing we should realize is, oh, it's not automatically compromise or condoning sin to eat with sinners. Right? We're so worried about what? Protecting our reputation that we can't be like Jesus. And we'll pat ourselves on the back for that. How are you the most holy human being that ever lived and the self-righteous hated you and the dregs couldn't wait to be around you. See, that, that isn't, anti, that isn't um, antithetical to holiness, is it? it it's, it's indicative of it. There are all kinds of excuses to make as to why we can't live that way. We make them all the time. What Jesus reveals is that excuses about not humbling ourselves are always tied back to what we believe 
about what got us to seat at the table. Jesus won't let us cheapen what he teaches. He, he's he's going to push until we see it. He's going to rip the rug out from under us every time to, to heal us. Right? He's a savior. It's what he does. The key to becoming the disciples Christ has called us to be is not upping our level of commitment. It's not becoming so righteous that we can't associate with sinners, but realizing more and more the grace that has been poured out on us in waves in the invitation to take a seat at the king's table when we were too poor, crippled, blind, and lame in our hearts to have ever earned our seat on our own. I, 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 th- I think that's the key. I really do. If, if God required a certain level of commitment and sacrifice and seriousness and ability in order to accept anyone, then he's been selling the poor and the bankrupt, physically and spiritually, a rotten bill of goods by pretending that you're actually saved by grace. Jesus isn't after more work here. That's not the way he doesn't push like that. He gives us his spirit. We saw this where the spirit works, right? As long as we keep in step with him, he works. Jesus is after a brokenness. He's trying to tear people down. He's not, he's not challenging them. He's trying to tear them down. He's an after more work here. He's after a brokenness within and towards others that reflects a genuine self-awareness about what really saves us. I, I don't know that we will ever be more Christ-like or ever more clearly reflect the heart of God than when our homes and our tables are open especially to those that could never pay us back. We need seasoned by grace to be disciples. So the key to obedience is not willpower, it's faith. When Jesus calls us to renounce all that we have, it's a way of saying renounce everything you cling to that makes you think you don't need grace, that makes you presume or assume a seat at my table. Let go of it all. Families, if that's what it is, possessions. In the souls of those with spiritual dropsy, these things become a means of serving ourselves, a means of believing that we're righteous enough. And Jesus says, humble yourself, sit down, and enjoy this banquet. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Remember Peter. In John, you will never wash me. If I don't wash you, you'll have no part with me. I will wash your feet. The Son of God will stoop down and wash our feet or we have no part with Him. None, beloved. None. So there are people who actually believe that with grace comes demand. They believe it enough to put it in a commentary. Right? So, which means, again, just set it aside for a second. That means if, if you put that in print, okay, if, if you live by that, then you, you have to like what you see in the mirror. I mean, I, I just, I, in other words, I, we talked about that just very briefly this morning. Okay, all right, but do you live up to the standards you create? Do you sleep peacefully at night? Revelation 19.9 Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Yes, because no one deserves to be there. The invitation that has gone out into the world is the proof. That invitation is the proof that God finds us all because that's who He's inviting. Poor and crippled and blind and lame. And that's the best news there is because that's precisely the tribe He wants around His table. Right, we, we, we've, that's what we have to die. I think that's where we have to die. Like, people say something like, you're into Jesus, what, do you need a crutch? No, man, I, I need two, and I need a wheelchair, and I need medicine, and I need an IV, and, like, and I, I need rehab. Like, I, I am so... Now, I can say that from the pulpit. I would have a lot more peace in my life if I actually believed that. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm saying, I, I think... This is the tribe he wants around his table. And there's still room tonight. 
And beloved, the room that still exists around God's table right now, that's the foundation of our mission. There's still room around the table. It's why Moundsville Baptist Church exists, beloved. Did you know that? That That's not Tony Romano's vision for us. It's the Lamb's vision for His church throughout all time, period. There's still room at the table. Compel them to come in. Compel them. Beg. God means to bring broken people near. So we don't have to start weighing out, well, who do we, who gets our time and just, just compel. God means to bring broken people near, give them honor, make them whole with His grace in Christ Jesus. Jesus means to be revealed in our lives through grace-driven humility that renounces anything other than Him as the means of salvation. So let our whole lives be seasoned by grace. The saltiness of Christianity in the world depends completely on the recognition of God's undeserved grace towards us in Christ. In Christ, And, and once we realize that we don't deserve what we have, we'll be much slower to withhold grace from anybody else. Right? No, no matter how wicked they are. And, and, look, and the world is nasty wicked. Like, it's nasty out there. That's why we're here. Right? We're, we're, we're called to it. There's room around the table. So let us know Christ. Let us humble ourselves by grace through faith and be the flavor of grace in this world as the disciples of Jesus Christ. All right. Linda's going to come and we'll sing a closing hymn together. I'll be down front. If any of you need to come and pray for any reason, I'll be here. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for inviting us to your table. Lord, I pray that we would, we would, through the Word, by Your Spirit, gain an increasing sense of what it is to be invited. Lord, we, we need this. I need this. I think this is the easiest, one of the easiest things to forget. So Lord, cure us of our dropsy. Speak to us. Conform us to the image of your Son. See it done, Father. We know you will. And we ask and pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.